Hey, this is Brent Jensen, and you're listening to No Sleep Till Sudbury, the show where we talk about the music that makes your skin vibrate. And today I'm joined by Twisted Sister founding member and guitarist J.J. French. Welcome to the show, man. How are you doing? I'm really well. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. Thank you. What's going on in New York? Uh, beautiful weather. Nice, no humidity. Not like Canada. <laughs> uh, last year we played a crazy show outside of Montreal. It was hotter than hell. The year before that we played Metal Montreal. That was hotter than hell. So I'm not used to having super hot days in Canada. Maybe global warming is kind of catching up to you guys at this point. Well, it, it just stopped snowing here, so uh, it's just starting to warm up up here. <laughs> okay. <laughs> And New York, it's pretty cold too, man. Yeah. You know what? Last year, we had really a miserable winter. We had like a long, it wasn't super cold. It was just long and dreary and chilly. And and we had a really warm February. So I was thinking, we got away with murder, man. We're going to have a great year. And then it sucked March, April, and May. (laughs) You never know. That's true. So, JJ, listen, man, thanks for taking the time. Uh, I really appreciate it. I know you're a really busy guy, and you're doing some things that I'm really, really interested in. And uh, I want to talk to you about that stuff um, before we get to the playlist that you supplied me with here. But before we do that, do you mind if we just touch on some Twisted Sister stuff really quick? Sure. Okay, awesome. Just a, a quick side note, actually. Twisted Sister was my first concert ever in my life back in December 1984. I don't know if we, we, you guys opened up for Maiden. I don't know if you remember that. That tour is a famous tour. Yeah. Because our album, Stay Hungry, became a coffee table album in Canada. Yeah. Um, everybody had it. It was so disproportionately bigger than any other American album. You know, Usually you sell at a ratio of 10%. Yeah. We were selling at a ratio of 35%. So we were going, we were six times platinum already in Canada. Yeah, you guys and were huge up here. Played from Halifax to Vancouver um, and stopping, you know, at 12 cities in between, start, starting in Halifax where the mayor tried to get us banned. Oh, really? And, and then Winnipeg, which was the coldest damn place on earth. <laughs> I mean, when the bus pulled up and it said minus 40, I said some like joke to my bus driver. I said, oh, is that, that's not real. He goes, oh, yeah, that's real. Oh, yeah. I walked outside and I thought to myself, the only good thing of having minus 40 is that there's no drug dealers on the street. Because, <laughs> oh, my God. I never, I mean, I got a freezer burn walking to the lobby of the hotel from the bus on my wrist. Oh, yeah. It's, it's brutal. I don't know how, I guess you guys like just, drink and conceive children in the winter well, time that's that's pretty much all we do that's right <laughs> i don't know i never experienced i mean i thought minneapolis was cold but i realized you guys get the weather before minneapolis gets it. yeah you get that uh, whatever you call the, the arctic express or something comes over there yeah the nor'easter i think it's called yeah yeah and then we, we edmonton was great i mean we played every major city and we got to vancouver it was, it was a great tour i remember the tour in fact at the maple leaf gardens in that tour johnny cash came to get our autograph no I'm sitting on the Zamboni machine at the Maple Leaf Gardens, and I hear y'all wanna. Goes y'all tell me we rock a fond twisted sister, and I went. It sounds like Johnny Cash. It can't possibly be. Johnny oh Cash. wow! I look up, and it's Johnny freaking Cash. That's crazy, man. And goes, goes oh, I need your autograph for my son John Jr. And I brought a photographer up here to prove that I met you guys. And I said, you brought a photographer with you to prove <laughs> met us. I said, you flew up here to meet us and you brought a photographer to prove to your son that you met us? So I went to the dressing room. I said, you are not going to believe who was outside waiting to get our autograph. And everyone goes, you know, who? Johnny Cash. And they're like, yeah, right. Sure. <laughs> I said, 100 bucks, man. I mean, can I curse on this thing? Of can course, I? of course. I, Motherfuckers, go ahead. $100. <laughs> My baseball says, Johnny doesn't bet unless it's a sure thing. 
So I go out to get Johnny Cash. At this point, he's taken by the Maiden guys because they see him, yeah. right? Yeah. You know, you know, country music in England's huge, right? Yeah. yeah. So the Maiden guys like freaking out. Johnny Cash, they, they want his autograph for their parents. So I, now he's gone in their dressing room. I look down the hallway. I see Johnny Cash standing next to the guys. Now, Johnny's really tall. Guys from Maiden are like really short, like in the Game of Thrones. You yeah. know, they're like short dudes. They look like the UFO guys in Close Encounters. <laughs> got Johnny Cash standing there with the little guys from Iron Maiden. And it looked really funny. And I went down to the dressing room. I said, Johnny, the, the guys will see you. And Johnny looks at the guys and Iron Man says, sorry, boys. Came here to see Twisted Sister. Oh, <laughs> wow. So he walks in our dressing room. We're like in a state of shock, you know. And he and we got photos of this. And he goes, I need your autograph of my son, John Jr. We're, we're like freaking out. And I said to him, uh, wow, Johnny, um, it's great that you're here. Uh, we may play Nashville. He goes, if you all play Nashville, you'll call me up. I said, what's your phone number? He says, you call the House of Cash. So two months later, we played Nashville. I was in the hotel. Yeah. I get the number for the House of Cash, which I thought was a loan company, you mm -hmm. know? Yeah. So I call it up, and this woman goes, House of Cash. I didn't know at the time, by the way, that woman was his mother who answered the phone. Wow. So I said, is this House of Cash as in Johnny Cash, or is this House of Cash like in a bank? Yeah. She goes, Johnny Cash. And I go, uh, is Johnny there? She goes, he don't live here, sweetheart. It's a museum. Oh. So I tell him that J.J. Friend says, hi, and I'm in town, you know, I'd love to see him. So I'm at the Hilton. The next morning, 8 o'clock in the morning, the phone rings. You know, I'm thinking it's my wife. Yeah. Right? I wake up, I go, yeah. He goes, hey, J.J., it's Johnny Cash. I almost fall off the bed. Oh, right? wow. like, Oh, my God. So he goes, <laughs> can you put me and Waylon on the guest list? And I went, what? You <laughs> you and Waylon? I said, don't you guys just show up there with the coat and the hat? I mean, Yeah, exactly. And I guess this, don't you own the arena? I mean, I don't know what Nashville's like, but I'm thinking, do you really need to be on a guest list? Yeah, he's like the king of Nashville. So we put him and the whole Carter family came down, and we had a great night, you know, and then they invited us to their house for dinner the next night, but we couldn't stay because we were on tour. Yeah. But about two months later, while we were still on tour, my wife calls me and says, I just saw Johnny Cash on the Today Show. And Brian Cumble asked him what he listens to. And he goes, I listen to popular music. My two favorite bands are the Rolling Stones and Twisted Sisters. No. <laughs> yes, I remember my Canadian dates really well. That's amazing, man. I can't believe that. Wow. Yeah. I was actually going to ask you that that Sudbury show that you played, I think you played it either the day before or the day after. And what's odd about that is, first of all, Sudbury is really small. I don't know if you remember the show itself. It's it's a 5,000-seater Sudbury arena. But... um. Yeah. I think this show was like a last-minute ad because it wasn't in the official tour program. Okay. Yeah. Sudbury is located between what and where and where? It's like it's like four hours north of Toronto. Okay. Well, we must have done that the night after the Toronto, the Maple Leaf show. Then was I, that it? The Maple Leaf show. I, yeah, I guess. I guess you're on your way out west. Okay. I just thought it was. I, I don't think it was scheduled, and I, I never did find out what happened there because it wasn't in the tour program. Well, I mean, can I, let me ask you, sure. did Maiden fit their entire stage in? No. See, that's the thing. It, it's really small, JJ. Like, I was really surprised, first of all, when the concert was announced because no huge bands, no big market bands ever went up to Sudbury because it was so small. It's like 150,000 population. Huh. Yeah. Uh, I'm assuming it was sold out. Oh, it totally was. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, um, I, I don't remember that in particular, but uh, I remember the dates. I remember that Canadian run very fondly because that was at the peak of your much music video period that's right know? that's right and that was the peak of our video period and it kind of like we were the right band at the right place at the right time with the right album oh absolutely 
and uh, it was a, I, have, I have really fond memories, and we have an, a long-term uh, relationship with the Canadian fans of a certain age because everybody had Stay Hungry. Mm-hmm. It's incredible. I did, definitely. Yeah, I played that record all the time. Mm. But yeah, you guys, were, I, you guys were fantastic. We used to listen to you all the time, man. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Um, now, now, Twisted Sister played its last show in, last November in Mexico. Is that right? Yes, we did. Okay. And is that it now? Well, <laughs> that's it as far as my thinking today. Okay. You know, we stopped once before um, in 87. Yeah. And I never thought we'd ever play again. Okay. Uh, and we obviously got back together again 12 years later. Yeah. So I'm not one to be... I'm I'm not a um, a finalist and say never again. Yeah. But in my mind, when we played our last show, I thought this probably may be our last show. Yeah. So uh, I have no intention of playing another show. Okay. And if something were to come up, uh, it wouldn't be for a couple of years because the last thing I want to do is even touch a guitar at this point. I don't even want to play. So yeah. I walked off stage uh, on the Mexican date. Yeah. And I gave all my guitars away that night. Oh wow. To my crew. And uh, I came home. I mean, well, don't feel bad for me. I got sixty more. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, my my guitar is like my wife's shoes. They fuck at night. And there's wood next to <laughs> So uh, I don't know about you, but my wife's shoes definitely fuck at night. It's like gremlin. <laughs> she puts down four pairs, and there's twelve the next fucking day. I don't know how the hell that happened. But anyway, I I didn't play for months. I just, my wife was stunned. She was like, yeah. "Why are you playing? I don't want to touch the guitar." People come to my house. I have a vintage collection. Let me see. I said, hey, help yourself. I'm not interested in looking at it. So wow. um, I was just in the frame of mind where I didn't want to play at all. Yeah. Uh, but I'm a blues player, so when my friends have their blues gigs, you know, they call me up and they, they all they got all they have to do is lure me into it. Yeah. And tell me you can play a BB King song and an Albert King song and a Paul Butterfield song, and I'm a happy camper. So that's a good segue into what you're doing now, and and this is something, as I said earlier, really interests me. You're uh, a keynote and a motivational speaker. You've got a book coming out. You're writing a book. And uh, you're a columnist for a business magazine called Inc. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The thing I like about this, JJ, is that it's it's business lessons as translated through your career in rock. Is that an accurate way of saying that? Yeah. It's business lessons derived through the prism of rock and roll. Yeah. Which is, that's fascinating. So can you take us just through that a little bit? What does that look like? Well, I manage the band, first of all. Yeah. I've always been a manager. So when you're a manager, you almost can't be a rock star because you're too busy doing the small shit. Mm-hmm. You can't be an asshole and be a man. Well, you can be, but to be the musician and the manager is tough. I mean, one one time VH1 asked me, they said to me, well, you know, you're one of the few musician managers in the business, yeah. another one being McFleetwood. And they said, what's it like to be both? Because the skill sets are so different and they pretty much are mutually exclusive, you mm-hmm. know? Musicians uh, really are not negotiators. They're basically a bunch of narcissistic, self-absorbed, black and white people. You love me, you hate me, you're on the bus, you're off the bus, that kind of shit. Right. And a manager is like a human cartilage that stands at the crossroads of uh, talent and dysfunction. Mm-hmm. Okay, That's basically what we do. And uh, it's an interesting skill set to have. I happen to have that skill set. And um, the band loves it because I'm, since I'm a musician, I actually care about all the money we're supposed to make. Yeah. Right? Because yep. I just make the same money they all make, except I make my management commission. So I have to go and get all that money. So they love the fact that it's the it's a guy in the band doing it, yeah. right? Because I watch every penny that comes in, and it's always a and you learn every day 
about the different streams of music uh, income. It's a fascinating business. You know, I can be in it all my life, and I'll never stop learning. Yeah, I'm always looking for the next angle, and I developed uh, a talent for business early on. Mm-hmm. And uh, and we did have a manager for a while because it got too crazy. I mean, by the time we hit you guys in Canada with the album, it was yep. so crazy that to be a manager and play was a bit overwhelming. So I kind of stepped back and we brought a guy in for, for five years. Uh-huh. I'm not saying that he did anything bad, but I checked out of it because I needed to just concentrate on the performances because the shows got super big, tours got crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, but I will never do that again. So VH1 said to me, so what's the difference between the two? And I said, well, at the moment they asked me that question, I thought of the answer. I said, here's the difference in a manager and a musician. When you go to a circus, usually circuses end all the same way. The big elephants come out at the end of the show. Right. And they walk around in a big circle with the trunks holding on to the tails of the other elephant. And on the last elephant, yeah. there's a sweeper who's shoveling the elephant shit. That's a manager. <laughs> and the musician is the, is the elephant. <laughs> That's true. It's a good analogy. So, so the bottom line is, is that if you can't pay me enough to justify the shit that I'm shoveling, I'm out. Yeah. Which is why management is such a thankless job, because you could be really good at it, but it's like, what have you done for me lately? And yeah. At least with the band, they don't bother me like that. But when you manage other bands, it's, you know, great, thanks for that deal. What are you doing for me tomorrow? And it just never ends, and it's crazy. And you have to be a kind of, you have to be into it, and I'm into it, I can do it, but... I have lost the desire to manage other people. I don't do it anymore. Yeah. So I need to find another avenue besides the business of Twisted. The business of Twisted is huge because we license and market ourselves very um, aggressively. Yeah. Our music, we're not going to take in a Wanna Rock or in more TV shows, movie trailers, movie soundtracks, and TV commercials yeah. than any of the songs from the 80s. Kind of like the way Queen, uh, Queen, We Will Rock You and We Are the Champions are like everywhere. That's, and that's journeys true. don't stop believing is everywhere. Yeah, James Brown's "I Feel Good" is on every medical commercial on the planet Earth. Just use James Brown. There's a million other songs with the word "doctor." We're too lazy to listen to those other songs. Just <laughs> do "I Feel Good." Da, 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 da. Get some overweight <laughs> person to dance while they're playing the music. So we're lucky in that we kind of hit the bullseye with two very, very, very popular songs. And uh, music buyers are lazy, man. They go. What do we use as commercial? Let's use We're Not Gonna Take It. There's 800 billion songs out there. <laughs> what about that one? That, we want to use I Want to Rock. So we're lucky. And and let me tell you, um, Journey's lucky. James Brown is lucky. There's a handful of us because you hear these commercials over and over and over again. Yeah. So we match that. That's a big deal. It's a huge income stream for us. I bet. Sync That's huge. And then there's the merchandising of the band. So it's really, really busy. But I will not take a new band on. I don't think the rock music business is healthy at all. No, I don't think so either. I will not sit around while a band develops because there's really no money in it anymore. I hate to say it. It's not that I'm like a negative guy. I say to guys, listen, man, someone's going to make it. And I hope it's you, but it's not going to be with me. When I was 20 years old, the, the laws, the rules of the game are not the same anymore. And um, they've changed drastically because nobody plays... No radio stations play contemporary rock music for real. No agents want to sign new contemporary rock bands for real. And the sales of guitars and amps worldwide is collapsing. I'm not saying I don't like rock. I'm not saying rock is dead. What I'm saying is it's an aging out music form right mm-hmm. now. Yep. And uh, that's a reality that people don't want to face. I'm telling you, it's not like the worst thing in the world. We had a 50-year reign of absolutely some of the greatest music's ever been produced. Mm-hmm. But things go on, and right now hip hop is bigger, you know, yeah. and R and B is bigger, and country is is bigger. Yeah. Uh, 
having said that, um, I decided now that I'm not going to manage, what am I going to do? So I went to an Inc. magazine book signing for an author named Les McCune, okay. who writes business books. Predictable success is his big one. It's huge New York Times bestseller. Okay. I met Les years ago. Um, I met a guy named Steve Farber, who's my mentor, and he's written a book as well. And he's had two bestsellers, and he's a, also a great motivational speaker. Right. And they write for Inc. So while I was at the book signing, I walked up to the editor of Inc. and I said, I'm J.J. French, Twisted Sister, and you don't have a rock guy as one of your writers, and I believe I can do it. He said, send me something. I sent him my first article, and they said, we love it. And now there's 37 articles. That's awesome. Congratulations. So I, I love writing for Inc. You know, it's short to the point. You know, you got to deliver a new one every month. There's 37 of them. You, you, you go, if you just go online and you put JJ French, J A Y J A Y F R E N C H slash Inc. I N C Inc.com, you'll, you'll click on a site that will take you to all my articles. Okay, great. So from there, Goldmine Magazine, which is published by a friend of mine, they know I'm a Beatle fanatic. Mm -hmm. They asked if I write a Beatle column. So now I'm the official Beatle writer for Goldmine. Wow is great because I have an unending list of Beatles stories, just like a never-ending thing of new Beatle ideas and stories. Yeah. And then I'm an also a hi-fi audio, high-end audio hi-fi enthusiast, for lack of a better way to describe it. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, my friends have these crazy million-dollar systems in their houses with all this insane turntables that cost $100,000 and cartridges that cost $15,000 and speaker cable that cost $40,000. And it's at the fringe level of nutness. Yeah. And I write for an audio magazine called Copper. Okay. And my, and my wife works for the Jewish Daily Forward, and I write human interest stories for her. All these things started happening one after the other, after the other, after the other, after the other. One led to the next, and then I got a book deal. Wow. With Rosetta Books, so we're going to start writing it uh, the next month. Oh, that's great, man. What's the uh, release date? Is, is there one yet? Uh, first quarter, hopefully, of 2018. Okay. Cool. And it's basically going to be called Twisted Business... Um, business lessons through the prism of rock and roll. Awesome. That's fantastic, man. We'll watch for that for sure. Thank you. Very cool. You're a busy guy. We should uh, we should we should get into your list here. Oh well listen. I was so happy. You know, I started thinking of those like a short list and I and I'm thinking, how could I give so I stretched it to seven songs, but these are very meaningful to me. Yes. But trust me, there's like another fifty behind these I could rattle them off. So and I, and I was going to say, if you can, um, I'd love to have you back to uh, to do another list because, you know, every guest says that. I mean, I can't possibly pare this down to five or seven or ten or whatever. Um, but this is uh, this is an extension of my last book. And I actually had like a hundred songs, which makes more sense. Right. It's it's hard to, to bring this down to like five songs. So, yeah, it's almost crazy because we go through so many. At least if you're a rock, if you're if you're a rocker like me at my age that lived through it at the right place at the right time. Yeah. You know, then you, when that's when that happens to you, there are so many important records and songs in your life that you almost forget how good they are because, you know, you can't fit them in this list. But let's go through it. How okay. do you want to start? Okay, great. So let's start with Chuck Berry and School Days. Right. So I'm five years old, yep. driving in my father's Studebaker, coming back from a summer retreat in upstate New York, and he's got the radio on. Yep. And I hear, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, up in the morning and out to school. First <laughs> guitar riff I ever hear on the radio. Wow. Oh, my God. It was like, you know, I'm five, right? Because it's 957. Yep. Oh, this is just... Wonderful stuff. So that's just, that was a very meaningful, very, very meaningful thing. And then, of course, later on, Chuck Berry is the foundation of everything. And, yeah. and um, I don't know what to say about it. It's like just if you are of a certain age and you're, you're playing as blues-based rock and roll, 
you're going back to Chuck Berry and you're going back to, you know, BB, right, or Albert maybe, but Chuck Berry's building block. You know, you had to learn how to play like that first. So my first guitar solo was the solo from a Chuck Berry song called Down the Road a Piece, which, by the way, is the structural foundation of every guitar solo I write. Really? To this day, yeah. And I didn't even know... Uh, it was the Rolling Stones version of Down the Road a Piece, which was taken note for note from Chuck's version. And a friend of mine in my building showed me the lick. And it was the first guitar riff I ever learned. Wow. So that's important. Um, uh, then you jump to the Beatles. I want to hold your hand. You know what I didn't put in here because it sounds so lame. Mm -hmm. But the song that truly, really addicted me to AM radio was a song called Hey Paula by Paul and Paula, which was yeah. a doo-wop song. Yeah, I know that too. Like a little, you know, a little simple doo-wop song but in 1963 when my mother gave me a tabletop radio for the first time because i was home sick from school yeah i didn't know what i was doing i was going through the dials and i heard hey paula and they and they went that's number one 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 so i went wow what does that mean number one i'm 11 years old and during the next hour or two hours they played the same songs number two number five number ten whatever i got obsessed with the charts and um they said tuesday night we have a countdown of the survey and they counted down again and the song order changed, but Hey Paul was number one. So I said to my mother, how does that song get to be number one? Mm -hmm. you know, said, um, I don't know. I said, well, do you call in or does the world vote? I mean, is it a worldwide thing? I mean, I'm 11 years old, right? Yeah. yeah. So she goes, I don't, she's looking at me like, uh, four, like 10 eyes, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so the next Tuesday comes and the song order changes and Hey Paul is number one again. And now I'm convinced Hey Paul is the world's number one song. I'm also convinced that people vote Yeah. or they call in. My mother has no idea what the hell I'm talking about. <laughs> this goes on and it's number one for six weeks all right yeah and then it gets knocked off by walk like a man by the four seasons and i go and i start crying oh no start absolutely crying i'm freaked out <laughs> how did that happen and, you know so that led to me going to a record store and buying the first record and that's an important thing in my life but anyway so i become addicted to the radio all during 63 you know and then kennedy gets assassinated you know yeah. and my mother was a political consultant. My father was a jewelry salesman. My father wanted to be, wanted me to go in the jewelry business, but then one of his friends got murdered in broad daylight Ooh. in the diamond district. So I said, that's not safe. <laughs> but my mother was a political consultant to a lot of big time politicians in New York. Yeah. And she said, well, you know, when you get to be 16, I'll get you a job in Washington, D.C. as a page. But then November 63, Kenny gets assassinated. I said, I don't want to do that. That's dangerous. And then, of course, lo and behold, two months later, I want to hold your hand comes and changes the world. And yeah. It's not an exaggeration. It changed the world. No, uh, yeah. I, I could put a billion Beatles songs there. I know every one of them. But that song changed, simply just changed the world. That's all. So, and the Beatles basically infused my life. And I look at them like a religion. And I know far too much than a sane person should know. Yeah. And if Paul McCartney came to my house, he'd think it's a stalker's house. I'd be embarrassed. <laughs> it, it's really embarrassing. Um, and I happen to be close friends with some of the world's biggest beetle freaking lunatics and we're all crazy i mean yeah there's no reason on earth why there should be a book that tells you about every printing plant that ever printed every single european album and that on a sunday afternoon on november 3rd while they were printing you know some beetle album somewhere in england or an ep the letter s ran out of yellow ink and it's like a, a 16th of an inch lower than the t i mean there's no wow. reason why anyone should know that shit <laughs> i know that's, <laughs> that's crazy problem. yeah you know, we know stuff that's so arcane, so so minute. We know minutia of stories and analysis, and the, to the point where the Beatles are like, "Are you people crazy?" Uh, no, I'm not <laughs> kidding you. My friend wrote the Beatles gearbook, Andy Babuke. Yeah, it's an in-depth report on every single instrument used on every single song, right? Yeah. 
he's interviewing Paul McCartney. And he goes, so um, on February 16th, when you were recording a paperback writer, why'd you play your Hoffner? And Paul goes, because it was in tune. <laughs> and my friends go, no, no, really. So you play the Hoffner because it had a certain... Paul said, no, it was in tune. It's what do you mean? So I looked at Mal. I said, give me a bass that's in tune. Right? So we ascribe all sorts of craziness. Yeah. And meanwhile, and, it's and just for, simple. And meanwhile, it's just like... He said that he told Ringo that, that Ringo had seven drum heads with the Beatles logo on it. Ringo said, I only had three. And Andy says, I had seven. And Ringo said, no, I only had three. And Andy said, let me show you something, Ringo. From fifth, from August 15th of this year, you had one. And then you switched to this one, 1964. And Ringo looks at him and says, you people are crazy. Okay, so, <laughs> so that's the Beatles. And my religion is the Beatles, and that's it. I don't know what you can say about Dylan. Scary. He's just scary. He's just one of the scariest guys. And Don't Think Twice is All Right. Yeah. He's one of my favorite Dylan songs. But the first five albums are just... You, I mean, what are you going to say? The greatest American songwriter. Yeah. Just it, the greatest. It, it, this is probably my favorite Dylan tune, too. I just I love the minimalism of it. The lyrics are poignant. Like, mm. it's, just, it's a fantastic song. It's so fantastic. It's such a throw-out number. It's so, it just slices and dices the person to death, doesn't it? Yeah. In the simplest way. It is so... It, but, you know, he's stunning. And everything he wrote, those first five albums are just devastating. So I, I could put 20 Dylan songs there. I just yeah. put Don't Think Twice, all right, because it's the latest one I'm playing on guitar. All yeah. Right? Uh, Paul Butterfield Blues Band. Okay, so this is the album that I bought that made me buy my first electric guitar. Okay. I bought a Telecaster because of Mike Bloomfield. Really? Whose who's photos on the back cover. Yeah. And I fell in love with the, with the blues. And like a lot of people, you know, the Stones or Paul Butterfield introduce you to the blues, and then you go backwards, right? You want to know why. Yes. So then you go back to Muddy Waters, and you go back to... Howlin' Wolf. To, James. You keep going back until you hit Robert Johnson, which is like basically the creation of God. Yeah. Right? When you get to Robert Johnson, no more James. Basically, God has arrived on this planet in the, in, the, in the guise of these two guys. And any guy who's into the blues who doesn't go back far enough to understand it is an idiot because you need to go back there to really get why the Delta Blues occurred. Yeah. You, know, you just got to understand before it hit Chicago, yeah. it came out of Mississippi. And it's just deadly i mean it's freaking i don't know about you but it speaks to me in ways that are just supernatural in a way yeah i i, I love the harp on this tune i've always been a fan of this tune it, isn't it great the way it comes in yeah it's just i play the song live i don't play harp but i i played with the sax player a couple of months ago and i said do me a favor on the second part when the harp comes in you do the sax riff Oh. I want to hear that run away with the song because as much of a guitar player as I am, it's not a showcase tune for Mike Bloomfield. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just so warm. I love it. Oh, it's great. Yeah. So uh, you got that. Then, of course, Albert King. What can I say about Albert King? Yeah. I heard Crosscut Saw. I lost my mind. <laughs> Man, how the hell do you do that? Well, I found out we can't do it because, A, we play right-handed, and, B, he plays upside-down lefty. Yeah. So the reason why he stretches the note a semitone more than we do is he has gravity on his side. The dude's got, he was a truck driver. His hands look like baseball gloves, you know. Mm. He pulls down on those notes. If anyone is not familiar with Albert King, but you do know Stevie Ray Vaughan, do yourself a favor and buy the DVD, Stevie Ray and Albert, and watch. Watch how Albert plays four notes and destroys Stevie Ray Vaughan. <laughs> like Stevie, and, but Stevie is there going, I'm being destroyed by this. By this. <laughs> <laughs> and he's trying his best to keep up. All Albert does is play four notes. Yeah. That's all he does. But he's the meanest, 
freaking four notes in the history of the blues. It is the meanest, nastiest tone. I mean, he played a flying V through an acoustic amp. I don't know if you're familiar with acoustic amps. No. They're the worst amps made by a non-communist country. Okay. <laughs> okay. I mean, they're pieces of shit with a horn that no one makes sound good except Albert King for some reason. Right. Gets the tone of the god. So Albert and yeah, BB was the first blues guitar player I saw. Nineteen sixty-eight, the Fillmore East. I saw him headline with Johnny Winter, as a matter. Okay. Uh, Johnny Winter was amazing, but Albert really is the shit. But you can't go wrong with Freddie. You can't go wrong with Albert. You know, yeah. or get into Magic Sam, get into Buddy Guy. Yep. And then if you really want to take it back, go to Lightning. You know, go listen to Lightning Hopkins. Right. Listen to Lightning Hopkins. And if you really want crazy vocals, listen to Memphis Slim. Um, mm. You know, listen to Sonny Boy Williamson. I could go on forever. Yeah, right? that's that's in depth, man. I can go on forever about this stuff, but I love all of it. I can listen. I will listen to the blues. There's no time limit on the blues. There's no cool or uncool about the blues. No. The blues is timeless. It doesn't matter if Despacito is the biggest song in the world or Gangnam Style is the biggest song in the world. Yeah. The blues is a safe harbor of emotion that's so real and brutally. And look, it's the foundation of rock and roll. So yeah, no, well said. It, it will never go away. It will always be consistent. And you know, going back to what you said about uh, those four notes that King played, you know, that that's what I love the most about the blues is just that right note in the right tone at the right time. And most guitar players who, who learned all that super fast English shit, nothing against. No, it. I mean it's, it's just amazing. soulless. It's but it's soulless. I'll take the I'll take the three notes that BB plays when he opens up a slow blues. Yeah. Any day of the week. Exactly. Any day of the week. They're so compact, so emotional. Um, and you know when you hear Albert, you know it's Albert. When you hear BB, you know it's BB. It's a very simple equation. You know yep. they're so good that their their fingers. And Clapton, by the way, is a student of all this. But but Clapton is a blues guitar player and not that indistinguishable from Joe Bonamassa or a lot of other great blues players. And I think Clapton will even tell you, I'm a player of the blues. Yeah. And, you know, Stevie Ray is another version of that amplified. He's an amazing player. Yeah. But give me Albert or BB or Freddie King or, or Buddy Guy. I'll take them in any day. Yeah. Yeah, for okay. sure. Now let's get to Pink Floyd. Okay. So Sergeant Pepper comes out and it's a great psychedelic record, right? Well, yep. we all think it's a great psychedelic record. Well, it's a really great pop record with psychedelic tones on it. That's but if right. If you really want to know what LSD on vinyl is, listen to the Pink Floyd album Piper at the Gates of Dawn. Yeah, Sid Barrett. It's LSD on vinyl. It is so far more psychedelic than Sgt. Pepper ever could be because Sid Barrett was out of his mind. Yeah. And See Emily Play was the single on the American version, but they didn't release it in England as uh, on the English version. You had to buy the single. Mm. But I saw them play it on American Bandstand. <laughs> Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, wow. In fact, it was the week before Sid lost his mind. Oh, wow. Clip somewhere. I saw the clip at a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame thing where they played Sam Lee Play, and Dick Clark is like talking and interviewing Sid and Roger Waters. And he goes, Oh, that was the Pink Floyd, their new single, Sam Lee Play? Yeah. We have Roger Waters and Sid Barrett here. Let's talk to them. So, Sid, <laughs> tell me a little about the song. And he holds the microphone in front of Sid, and Sid's like, No reaction. <laughs> like, he's out. He's already gone. <laughs> the mailman already took the brain. It's, it's out of there. So Roger leans over. He goes, "Really, this whole first single?" Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So, okay. So Sid, tell me about the tour. No Nothing. response. <laughs> I said, "Blaze Donut." Look. Roger leans over, answers the question. I'm saying to myself, "Oh, I'm watching the end. This is it. Yeah. I'm watching no. the final chapter." 
What has said in interviews that right around the recording of CM Only Play was when uh, Sid Barrett started to really change and was irretrievable. Like he, he, he didn't recognize the other guys in the band. Like he just was gone. You know how sad, it's so sad. It is. It is so damn sad because, I mean, I happen to love Piper the Gates of Dawn. I think it's one of the greatest, like think about the year 1967, how yeah. great 1967 was. Musically, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it gives you the debut of Fleetwood Mac, the debut of Cat Stevens, the debut of the Grateful Dead, the debut of the Jefferson Airplane, the debut of Pink Floyd, Loves Forever Changes, Cream's Disraeli Gears. The Beatles released two albums in 67, Sgt. Pepper in June and Magical Mystery Tour in December. Yep. The Stones released Between the Buttons in January and their Satanic Majesty's Request in December. It is one of the greatest Procol Harum. And by the way, Whiter Shade of Pale, I don't know, I can't say enough about Whiter Shade of Pale. Yeah. But that was probably the biggest song of the summer. Okay. And uh, and even John Lennon, when they asked him what's the best song of 67, he said Whiter Shade of Pale. Really? Okay. Wow. Yeah, that was his favorite song. Wow. But um, anyway, Pink Floyd's Pipe of the Gates of Dawn, guys. If you haven't heard it, you're a Floyd fan, you think the Floyd is about Dark Side of the Moon, you are so wrong. <laughs> you don't understand it. Listen to Pipe of the Gates of Dawn. Man. That's the thing. I think that a lot of people, when they hear the song, because it is popular and it's recognizable, but it's easily mistaken for a band that is not Pink Floyd, because so many people yeah. think Dark Side of the Moon, The Wall, right? But it, you know, people think this could be Dave Clark Five, this could be The Birds. Yeah, it's a, it's a very poppy song. Bowie covered it on pinups. Yeah. He was a huge Sid Barrett fan. By the way, Bowie didn't do a bad job on pinups. He did uh, Friday on My Mind by the Easy Beats, did a great version of that. Yeah. Anyway, Floyd Simley plays one of my all-time faves. That album is an all-time fave, and it, and, it, and it really was important to me, that record. So that's why I put on that. And Bowie's five years, well, Bowie changed my life. I went from being an Allman Brothers Grateful Dead fan to... A glitter guy. When I got a copy of Ziggy Stardust in the mail, was that your entry point into Bowie? I was really it. Yeah, September '72. Okay. I was a Grateful Dead fanatic. I'd seen the Dead 26 times, 25 yep. on acid. Then I saw them straight, and I said, "That's the worst fucking band I ever heard." <laughs> no shit. I thought it was the greatest religious experience of my life. And then I went straight, and I said, "What the fuck are they playing? <laughs> they can't play. They can't sing." And they're in, not in tune. I mean, I saw it was an opening band. Now, try to imagine the Dead as an opening band for. I saw them open for um, Janis Joplin. Yeah. What What do you think the Grateful Dead do in forty minutes? You know what they do? What? They tune up and say good night. Oh God. <laughs> so I saw them twice. I saw them open for Country Joe and saw them open for Janis Joplin. And they tuned up, but then I saw them the third time. They played six hours. I went, Oh my God, this is the greatest thing on earth. And I saw them on acid like a lot, and I was so in tune with them. Yeah, I took my mother to see him. This is the greatest band on the planet. You know, I told all my friends. I, I just I saw them with Pigpen twenty five times, right? So I'm at we're talking sixty eight to seventy two. Yeah. But my drug my drug days ended on Easter Sunday, nineteen seventy two. Okay. That was the last I did drugs, and I saw the dead in that following October. And your Grateful I'm Dead sick. days ended right after that. God. Well, I went. <laughs> The Dolls in September as well, and they sucked. The Dolls couldn't play their way out of a paper bag, but yeah. they looked really good. Yeah. I said, man, if you could look that good and play, you'd actually make a lot of money. That was the foundation. That was the justification for putting Twisted Sister together. Oh, really? Eh? Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly what it was. Yeah, well, I know about your, your Wicked Lester affiliation, too. I don't know if you want to get into that a little well, bit. Well, I mean, I they came down. Uh, it was a, through a crazy set of coincidences. Gene got my number, and they were looking for new guys to replace the old guys in Wicked Lester. Yep. Because Wicked Lester sounded like 
uh, the band Looking Glass. Do you remember Looking Glass? No, I don't. They had a hit single. They had like a number one song, Brandy, you're a fine girl. What a sweet life this could be. Did you ever? Brandy by Looking Glass was a huge hit. Yeah, that sounds familiar, yeah. And that's what Kiss sounded like. Yeah. So they give me the album, and it's got, she is the first song, except it's got flutes on it, like Jethro Tull. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Moonlight, like a da 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 I thought, whoa, this is weird shit. We're going to be heavy. We're firing all these guys. We're going to get heavy. Yeah. We're going to be like Slade. Oh, really? I... And um, I auditioned, and I didn't get the gig. And, and then um, I joined an Allman Brothers copy band in the summer of 72. When I came back to New York from Pennsylvania, they were yeah. still advertising guitar players. I called up, and they had just hired Ace. Okay. And he said, why don't you come down and listen to the band in a couple of weeks when we have it together? And I went down to their loft, and I saw probably one of the very first performances of all of those Kiss songs done Kissified with Marshall amplifiers in their loft. And I went, that's unbelievable. That's, wow. you know, like that. Their vision was so unbelievably clear. They knew exactly they wanted to be the American Slate. They were playing Marshall amps. You know, back in those days, American bands did not use Marshalls. Yeah. Was Fender. Yeah. But Jimi Hendrix used Marshalls. And, and uh, everyone else was using Fenders. Whose idea was that? Was it, was it Freely's or was it Simmons' idea? Well, I think what happened was they just they wanted to be like Slade, so Slade had big amplifiers, and they just wanted to emulate. They knew visuals. They knew Marshall amps look heavy. I mean, Kiss is great. What can I say about Kiss? You know, I was until Kiss was inducted in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I didn't believe Rock and Roll Hall of Fame had any um, justification. I didn't think they were real. You can tell me you hate them. I don't care. If you don't acknowledge that Kiss probably was responsible for more kids wanting to be rock stars than any other band but the Beatles, then you're an idiot. Oh, I fully agree with that. I've talked you know, about that on the show several times. Yeah, I don't. You know, so when people say, "Oh, Kiss sucks," I really, I said, "Show me a band that has had more of an impact on making people want to be rock stars, exactly. except for the Beatles, than yeah. Kiss." And uh, and you can't. Guitar they players create, in particular, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and Ace is not a great player. I, see, I agree with that, but he's got a special flair for playing yeah. the right notes and the and yes. licks, right? Yes, he does. Yeah, I blew me away when I saw him in the loft. And I have astonishing respect for that band and for what Gene and Paul created. And yeah. they've been through hell. You know, any band that's been together more than 40 years in this business and has succeeded yeah. gets my respect. It's a yeah. hard business to survive. Yeah. So, um, so Bowie, five years. Well, yes. I mean, the whole album, the Hunky Dory. Then I got into Man Who Sold the World. Yep. Bowie was so transformational. You know, and then I saw him in Carnegie Hall before he played the famous Radio City show in February of '73. Yeah. He played a September 18th show at Carnegie Hall, which I went to. Okay. And I have to tell you how funny this was. The band comes out on stage dressed like Ziggy, right? Okay. But with no stage, but no stage props. Okay. They just had a backdrop, but they're dressed like Ziggy, and they play the whole album and a couple songs in five years, and they come back for an encore and they do two Chuck Berry songs. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself. How weird. I mean, not that it's wrong that they play Chuck Berry songs. In fact, I even respected them more. I thought, wow, that shows you the cred of David Bowie. Right? Yeah, yeah. So, all good, all good. Chuck Berry songs. But I always thought in the back of my mind, how strange. They're dressed in drag and they're playing Chuck Berry songs. Yeah. So, flash forward, five years ago, we're doing a festival in Spain. We're playing with Uriah Heep. Okay. Play of Uriah Heep. Uh, was the bass player for um, Trevor Boulder. Yeah. For the Spiders. So I walk into the elevator of my hotel, and lo and behold, there's Trevor Boulder. So I go into my fanboy mode. Oh, man, I saw you at Carnegie Hall in 1972. <laughs> the Spiders. 
And, I, and he goes, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. I said, i got to ask you one question. Is it my imagination or would you guys play Chuck Berry songs? He goes, no, we did. And I said, why? He said, we ran out of songs. Uh. <laughs> how, uh, how cool is that, right? That's funny. You meet your heroes, which is kind of nice. Yeah, that's great, man. These are, these are some of the songs that impacted my life and made me love the business of music. Yeah, great selections. Um, thank you so much for sharing these, and I know that, that you've got a bunch more. So, you know, if you want to come back on the show, then I would definitely love to have you. Well, you're deeply knowledgeable. I like people who really have that. So, anytime, sure, I'd love to. Thank you very much, JJ. I appreciate your time, man. I know you're a busy guy, so thanks for taking the time to do this. Well, man, Brent, thanks for having me, and um, until we meet again. Yeah, I'll send you an email after this. Okay. Okay, great, man. Thank All you right. very much. Thanks, brother. Take care. Bye, bye. All right, this has been No Sleep Till Sudbury with Brent Jensen and my very special guest, Mr. J.J. French from Twisted Sister. Until next time, take good care. Brent Jensen is the best-selling author of No Sleep Till Sudbury, Leftover People, and All My Favorite People Are Broken. All titles available in stores and on Amazon Worldwide. <laughs>